me. Well, hello, everyone. Sorry for that. Um, hopefully it wasn't too awkward of a silence, but a bit of silence. Uh, not a bad thing. I'm excited to get to um, get us started thinking about Lent and this season in the church calendar um, that is the six weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, I must confess, however, that I have an interesting experience with Lent myself in terms of practice. So growing up, um, I was not exposed to the church I was raised in. We didn't talk about the church calendar. We were one of those churches that kind of skipped right to Easter, to the party part of the celebration. So I had never, I didn't really know that there were practices that Christians engaged in, in preparation for this season, um, as we walk with Jesus, um, to his death and then ultimately through his resurrection. So in college, that was the first place where I was exposed to that. Um, and we weren't given a lot of instructions on how necessarily to engage with Lent. It was just what was presented to me was, well, in order to feel closer to Jesus during the season, you should give up something you really like for six weeks and then use that time or those resources to get closer to Jesus. It was a very um, individualistic expression um, of this practice. And so I decided like a lot of, a lot of my friends that the first year I learned about it, okay, I'm going to give up dessert. But then I proceeded to find a loophole in my Lenten practice, which was, does hot chocolate count as a dessert? I'm going to go ahead and say that it doesn't. So I proceeded to drink probably more hot chocolate than I'd ever drank in my life, which kind of canceled out the experience of sacrifice. Right. Um, but Part of why I share that story is both confession for myself, but also as an example of the way that some of the dominant narratives, at least in the white evangelical church around Lent, are pretty limited. Um, and they reinforce a notion that privileged people move closer to God by experiencing mild discomfort on our own terms for about six weeks. And then we assume that that application of these practices is somehow universal. Right. And we ask already marginalized communities to choose into some kind of greater suffering as an act of discipleship. And I think there's a problem with that. Um, I thought about this through a slightly different lens. Um, a couple of years ago, I was hanging out with a dear friend, Ashley, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, Ashley and I used to be university colleagues. Um, Ashley is a black woman, grew up in East St. Louis, um, and has navigated predominantly white institutions her whole life. But we're sitting on the couch at the end of September watching a news story that's talking already about something to do with Halloween. And she looks at me, gives me the kind of side eye that only Ashley can give and says, Halloween is a white people holiday and it's weird. And I thought about that for a moment. I thought, what does she mean by that? And then as we kept talking about it, I said, yeah, there's something about a group, right? A community that experiences relative safety and comfort coming up with an event to celebrate being scared out of their minds because that's such a contrast to everyday life. And Ashley said, yeah, because nobody in my community is going to come up with a holiday like that, right? Like life is already pretty scary. We don't need to celebrate that in a new way. And that made me wonder if there's ways that that, uh, right? That's about Halloween. We're not in Halloween. We're in Lent. But what are the ways... Um, that we've internalized an experience of Lent that actually is not applicable across our entire community of faith. And what would it mean to reclaim Lent in a way that is actually liberating and healing and follows the story of Jesus? I wonder if some of the... Um, there's an invitation to let go of an experience of Lent that, again, asks those of us maybe with privilege to feel extra guilty about personal sin. Um, and that if we let go of that, we might actually be able to embrace a collective experience of repentance 
and again, of healing and liberation. So part of why I've been thinking about this a lot is there's a book I've been reading that I would highly recommend um, called White Too Long by an author named Robert P. Jones, who's a sociologist as well um, as a his background. He went to seminary. He was a pastor for a while, but he's particularly interested in how Christian theology in America was used to not only prop up white supremacy, but actually to spread white supremacist doctrines. And one of the things he points out is that um, in in the context of, uh, of slavery in the U.S., there were Bibles that were specifically made for the enslaved to read that cut out about 90% of the Old Testament and half of the first. So they were very light on the story of Exodus and God's liberative work in the world to free the slaves, to release the chains of the oppressed. And they were heavy on Paul, right? Heavy on the letters that Paul writes talking about right behavior and order and belief, those were also, right, the primary sermons that were preached then to white audience about individual faith, individual repentance, order, structure, and right belief um, that was able to separate itself from right action and communal repentance. So there's a direct line from these historical and social realities of our past um, and the way we view God and other people today. So maybe this Lent, we have an invitation and an opportunity to communally engage the God who liberates and gives us full freedom and permission to invite the spirit to untangle us from those, those social and historical uh, teachings that have been embedded in our practices. Perhaps the invitation is to engage in this season of Lent and even Easter in ways that feel really unfamiliar to us. Uh, but are more healing and liberative than repeating cycles of guilt and penance and the ways that that may distort our sense of ourself and of other people and of our uh, place in creator's world. So our text for this morning invites us to engage with creator, not from a place of fear over wrath or retribution, right? But from a place of deep love and acceptance. So this morning, our scripture is Mark 1 uh, verses 9 to 15. I'm going to focus on the first um, couple of verses in this passage, but it has implications for the rest of the passage as well. Um, so let me pray for us and read this scripture. It's also available in the chat, and then we'll um, unpack it a little bit. God, thank you um, for this space. Would you be with us as we receive your word? And God, would you speak to us um, both as individuals and as a collective about what it might look like to engage with Lent, perhaps in ways that we haven't thought about, in ways we haven't experienced, that we would imagine new ways um, to connect with you and connect with one another and connect with the rest of creation in this season. In your name, Jesus, amen. In those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. 
This is one of my favorite passages to study um, with college students at something we called Mark Camp, where we would spend an entire week studying um, and experiencing together um, half of Mark's gospel, and then hopefully folks would return the next spring break to study the next half. Um, but I love this passage because it's such a surprising opening, right? So the scene is that crowds upon crowds of Jewish people are flocking to the wilderness of the Jordan River, sorry, a place with deep historical and spiritual significance for their people and a place that connects them to their journey and their ancestors' journey because a man named John has shown up in a weird outfit preaching baptism for the repentance of sins. And what's fascinating about this is that in the Jewish tradition, Jewish folks do not experience baptism. That is not part of their ritual. There are other bathing rituals and ritualistic cleansings, but baptism is reserved for outsiders who want to become Jewish. It's a conversion ritual. So these crowds are unprecedented for a couple of reasons. One, because they indicate that the, the Jewish people in this setting are submitting to a conversion ritual that they aren't required to do because they are convinced that God's judgment is coming soon and they want to be ready, right? They want to be doubly ready. Um, sounds kind of ominous, if you ask me. So Jesus shows up as well to be baptized and Mark chooses not to tell us anything about Jesus's birth, Jesus's childhood, his professional life, his young adulthood. This is the first scene we get about Jesus. This is his entrance in the story. So in verse 10, we're told that the moment that he comes out of the water, Jesus, so get this, not the crowd, but Jesus sees the heavens torn apart, a spirit descending like a dove on him and a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved with you. I'm well pleased. It is significant to me that in this moment of intimate connector with creator, what Jesus receives is full affirmation not a sermon intended to blast everyone who's repenting, right? Or reminding them of how awful they are and how they need to grovel like worms in the creator's presence. What creator says is you are my child, the beloved. And just so there's no confusion, I'm pleased with you. You make me really happy just by existing. We would be wise not to underestimate the power of words and demonstrations of full acceptance, the way that those things impact human beings. They are powerful and healing. They knit something together inside of us that allows us to move through the world, inviting others to receive healing and liberation. And I believe that's one of the reasons out of all the ways that Jesus's ministry could have launched, that this is what we're given, we're privy to at the beginning. So if we want to engage with Lent in a way that helps us embrace creators liberating, freeing work through Jesus, then maybe we should start by considering what helps us engage with our own deeply inherent belovedness. What will help us most connect with our sense of being beloved children of God in this season? And perhaps however we answer that question becomes the practice that we're invited to embrace. What helps us experience belovedness? 
The second thing that I think might come out of this passage is that the context of Jesus's discipleship is not that he's part of the dominant ruling class, right? Jesus is not Roman. Jesus is a marginalized Jew in this culture. And it is in that place and out of that identity that Jesus experiences this deep affirmation. I have really appreciated the work of an artist, um, his name is Scott Erickson. You can follow him on Instagram. Called his name is Scott the Painter. But he's been doing a series in the last few weeks about looking at the story of Jesus through the lens of America's segregated history and saying, if we're actually going to root the story of Jesus in a marginalized context, then in the American context, these moments in Jesus's life would have shown up in a segregated society and Jesus would have been a black man on the side of the segregation line, right? So one of the pictures that struck me was he does a picture, he does a painting of this um, this moment of Jesus's baptism. But what he does is shows side-by-side pools, a pool for white folks and a pool for black folks, and shows Jesus coming out of the pool um, as a black man receiving the dove, right? The idea that what Jesus, what, what creator is affirming in Jesus's baptism Um, is the experience of the marginalized and saying you who are experiencing being rejected and despised by society, by dominant culture, you need to hear in a particular way your own belovedness. It's a reminder that if our Lenten practices aren't helping us engage with the context of Jesus's marginalized experience and translating that into our present, then what is the point? Because what happens next in that story is that Jesus moves out of his baptism into a wilderness temptation where out of his belovedness, he resists the lies that would assault his next moves and his sense of belovedness in order to preach a message of liberation and healing to the marginalized. The very good news that Jesus announces in verse 15 or begins to announce is that Jesus does not share a one size fits all gospel message, despite what I've been reducing, despite what I've been guilty of reducing the gospel to in several altar calls I've given, I've given over the years of my ministry, right? Jesus does not ask hungry people to fast in order to purify themselves on a spiritual level. He feeds them a a filling meal. Jesus challenges the way his rabbi peers have turned fasting into a kind of competition for who can be the most holy while the poor among them beg, beg and go hungry. Jesus doesn't call the poor to give up everything and follow him. He, res- he reserves that call for the rich. And here's the thing. If the good news we claim to have ready to share isn't good news for the most marginalized, it is not actually good news. If the gospel we want others to engage with isn't offering liberation for black, indigenous and other people of color, for women and for the queer community as they define freedom, then we might need to consider if what we've done is misapply the good news that may indeed be meant for a specific community with more power and privilege. We need to we need to uh, explore whether we've assumed that message is the same one that everyone needs. One way I've been thinking about this in a way that hits in a deeply personal way is that over the last three weeks, there has been a sharp uptick in violent attacks against Asian Americans across a wide range of ethnicities, right? Southeast Asian, East Asian, um, wide range of Asian American identities and experiences. Um, 
and this 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 comes at a moment where we've been in a year where documented hate crimes against Asian Americans has been on the rise since last March um, as a result of racist rhetoric, right? Assigning um, assigning blame for the pandemic with China and all of the ways that words um, have been used to pit people against Asian Americans as a result of that. And some of the statistics are startling. So in New York City, uh, actually I don't know if this is New York City or New York State, there has been a 1900% increase, right? I had to double check that because I thought it was 190%, but the statistics actually 1900% increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans since last March. Across the barrier or the Bay Area in the last three weeks, there have been multiple deaths and violent attacks against Asian American elders. And within the last two weeks, in our own Portland, Oregon, in Southeast Portland, along 82nd Avenue in the Jade District, nine Asian American owned businesses were targeted by having their windows smashed. Reading these stories of trauma have been deeply distressing. Um, some of you know, because I shared last March, my own um, dad was targeted um, by by racist verbal and physical attacks in California um, and one mile from here in southeast Portland last um, last March. So this is not an abstract threat to some of us. Um, this comes in the context of Friday uh, being the anniversary of Executive Order 9066, which was the legal document that ordered the forced imprisonment, imprisonment of Japanese American citizens, most of them second and third generation U.S. citizens um, during World War II. Um, the loss and trauma of that experience still remembered and lived by Japanese American families. Um, you can look up the history of Hood River, Oregon, and uh, uh, Japanese American farmers who were stripped of um, land and property during that experience. And it comes in the lar larger context of really the story of hatred and violence against Asian Americans in this country that is not told, right? Along with many other marginalized communities, but primarily because we have a black-white binary when it comes to race um, conversations in this country, um, most Americans do not know about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Most Americans do not know about um, that the largest public lynching um, done by citizen against citizen in America happened outside of LA's Chinatown in the early 1900s. So it makes me ask, what does an invitation for Lent look like for my Asian American community right now, right? What would that look like? An experience of being forever othered and simultaneously used as a wedge in the black-white binary experience of race. Is it to give up more? Is it to swallow more pain and accept marginalization as a way to experience God shaping us to know Jesus' suffering? Um, I believe there are leaders who are probably offering that interpretation. But I believe Jesus offers something else. I think Jesus invites us to explore this pain, to name it, to reject the internalized sense of hatred that comes from being considered a perpetual foreigner. And I think Jesus would invite the Asian American community to explore what it means in this season to experience healing and a respite from trauma, rather than to embrace a one-size-fits-all spiritual practice that might not fit right now. I believe we're invited to consider what a more liberated Lent might look like for all of our communities, whichever one you identify with and come from. For many of us, that will mean moving away from a narrative that this season must be about um, deprivation and forced contrition so that we can sincerely ask, 
what embracing our belovedness could look like and feel like today. So perhaps when we meditate on the words ashes to ashes, dust to dust, let us hear the invitation to experience our deep connection to the created world, not an invitation to groveling. And if we feel called to some kind of fasting this season, and some of us might, and I want to make space for that, let us examine how that fasting directly impacts breaking the chains of injustice, right, for others in our community. How is it tangibly moving towards the freedom and liberation that Jesus preaches and lives? Let us experience Lent as a season of freedom and healing so that we are more connected with the freeing and healing work that Jesus embodies through his ministry, death, and resurrection. And let us begin in the same place that Jesus does, by hearing and experiencing the truth that we are God's beloved and dearly loved children. Let me pray for us. Creator, um, we may have not heard the message along the way that when you look at us, what you see is good and something worth redeeming and healing so that we might offer healing and liberation um, to the world around us as we experience more and more of that ourselves. And so, God, as we move into a time of being able to process um, what it is that you might be speaking to us um, as a community, um, I pray that we would have eyes uh, to see and ears to hear what it is that we need to experience belovedness, not just um, in words, but in deed, God, and what it might look like for the communities we represent to experience belovedness. And I pray that out of that, whatever practice we feel invited to, whatever practice we want to invite others into in this season would come from that place of deeply, deeply knowing and experiencing that we are loved and we are seen. Um, and out of that, whatever resistance we face as we walk forward, we can do that. Um, not from a place of fear or shame, but from a place of knowing our profound and treasured status. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.